Um, very good to be with you guys. I, um, people have been asking me, as I'm trying to dodge these Bibles right here, um, people have been asking me this week, you know, hey, how are you feeling? What's going on? And um, over and over again, the, the image I kind of have, the story I tell about how I'm feeling, what's going on is that I, I feel like, um, well, I feel like I remember when I was in maybe second or third grade and I was, um, I sat next to this girl who was, you know, she hung the moon. I mean, she was the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And uh, but this, is, this is like the mid-80s when people would, one of the things that our schools would do as a fundraiser is we'd have roller skate night at the, at the Skate Plus, which is, if you know where um, the boomers deal is, you know, the miniature golf thing, that was where Skate Plus was. And Skate Plus, every so often we had a skating night, and I remember roller skate night, and I remember I, I, um, I, I wrote a little note to Lisa Igo, who sat next to me. And by the way, if, if you know her, she's here, just tell her it's not going to happen. Because I'm married now, and I have three kids, and we're, you know, so. But, um, but I remember leading up to skate night, I, I, put, I made a little, you know, very mature note that said, will you couple skate with me at skate night? And I had like a little yes or a no box right there, and I threw it in her desk because she was sitting right next to me. And so all day I sat next to her, you know, like, and there's the note in her desk, haven't gotten it back yet, you know, and there I am, sort of just declaring that I have a crush on this girl, you know, and waiting, and so I have a crush on you guys, I'm just waiting to see if it's kind of finalized, and I'm just, you know, I don't know what the process, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> so maybe we'll couple skate, we don't have to hold hands, but in the all skate direction, we'll try to find our, our way, so, uh, but very good to be here, you guys, it's, it's you know, it is a little bizarre this week, you know. T-shirts and weirdness and stuff. But you all know what I'm talking about. But there's just it's just been it's been a very cool time, as um, as Kyle said. Um, Kenton asked me to pray about our senior pastor asked me to pray about this uh, um, opportunity around Christmas, and so um, I'm I'm amazed that it's you know starting to get close to that time. So anyway, very excited. But um, I'm also excited to talk today about our next series in fearless generosity. I'm very excited about that. Let's do this. Let's pray together, and um, then we'll we'll get into it. So um, Jesus. Um, we know um, that you love us. We know that as we gather, you meet us here. We know that um, it, this is a place for some people after a week that um, they climbed mountains and slayed giants and did all kinds of things. They feel victorious. This is an opportunity to come and to celebrate. And for others of us in the room, God, there's the sense that maybe life itself has overwhelmed us and we need a refuge. God, we, play, we pray on, on both extremes, God, that you would make yourself known. Some of us, God, need to be challenged. We need you to push us to do or to be something, God, that we never thought was possible. Others of us, if only for an hour in our week, God, that you would bring to us comfort and peace. So, Jesus, we pray those things for us right now. And, God, in the midst of a week that goes by so quickly with so many things to do and so many things to take care of, God, we also acknowledge that these moments might be the only still moments in our week. So God, we just give you a moment of silence that you might speak to us, we might hear from you, and that we might be still. Lord, regardless of how we came into this place today, we ask that we would hear your words to us. 
We ask, God, as we're in such a hurry to, to hold on to our life, to cling to it, God, would you give us the courage to release it such that we might find the life that you have for us, which is a rich and generous and full life. So, God, it's in your name and in your power that we pray. Amen. Um, we are going to be in the book of Exodus. We'll be in, starting in Exodus chapter 1. If you need a Bible, some folks will pass one out to you. We, I, you know, I put all the scriptures on your outline. By the way, I feel like I put the entire Bible on your outline. There's so much scripture on your outline today. Um, but all of it will be on the screen. If you want, if you just have the need to like, actually hold a fake leather bound book, well, we have those, and we'd love to let you borrow one of those as well. If you don't have one of your own, you can steal one of ours. I know a guy who works here. You can just take it home. Uh, but, um, but yeah, we're, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1. So before we get there, uh, my, I have three kids. My, my youngest is four, and I, maybe he's like typical youngest children. I don't know. I didn't have any brothers or sisters growing up. Uh, but he is, um, he, by the way, he's like, he has two extremes. He has like incredibly awesome cute, and it's, I mean, he's like unbelievably so. He's got this, this like toehead blonde long hair with a permanent like dreadlock, which we can't figure out how to deal with. It just sticks straight out right here. Super cute, always hilarious. Very, and then he's also got terror. There's just no in between. There's no like, I think he's, it's just either on or off. But he's adopted a, a new policy or a new sort of mode of, of living in our house in which he, whatever, whatever things that he values, he'll eat a little bit if it's a candy thing, or he'll make a little bit if it's like a Legos thing or a toy or whatever, and then he'll hide it, he'll bury it somewhere. So it's not uncommon for us to find little piles of chocolate chips like in a t-shirt drawer or a le- like, a, like a Lego thing. By the way, every Lego thing he makes is like four stacks of Lego bricks. And he's like, Dad, can you see my spaceship? Man. It is very rectangular. I mean, it is good. So he's, he's, he just is under the belief that his nine-year-old brother will just come and steal it because it's so awesome. So he's hiding those things. In the couch, there's like half-eaten candy bars and stuff. We're like, well, that's wonderful that we're storing those there. You know, there's another place we can perhaps find. But they're just all over the place. And he believes that in some way or another that the world is out to take his things. That if he doesn't hide them or hold on to them in some way, that everything he's been given will be taken from him. We see, we learn at a pretty young age that there's a limited amount of goods in our life, limited amount of things, whatever it might be. And so we have to hide them and protect them. And when we talk about generosity, generally we're talking about the way in which people would live that they could give out of what else they have that's extra or excess. But the problem is most of us, most of the world, has a hard time recognizing when there's any excess. Most of us feel like we're generally operating at some kind of shortage. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to challenge this idea about giving out of perceived excess and really sort of figuring out how to give something even more courageously. Not just out of excess, but out of something much bigger. In fact, the Bible doesn't acknowledge, like, it doesn't say, for instance, yes, I realize there's not very much to go around, and I want you to share it anyways. That's not what the Bible says. That's what we think it says. The Bible actually says that there is an abundance, not only of stuff, but of everything that you need, an abundance of God. And I want you to learn how to live as if you don't own that stuff, such that that stuff doesn't own you. There is an abundance. It's overflowing. We just don't see it. Now, some of you are going, wow, this guy's considered, you're like maybe new, or you're kind of, as we start a new series, you're going, wow, like, starting off a new series, the guy's talking about how he's trying to be the lead guy here, and you got him talking about money. <laughs> That's a pretty tough message to saddle up to. I mean, so, but let me just tell you. The Bible is, at least when it talks about generosity, a conversation about money. But it is not, that's not where it ends. That's just merely the beginning. 
In fact, I want to tell you over the next couple of weeks, if we're talking about money's just barely the tip of the iceberg, the, what the Bible calls us to is a life that is far more courageous than just donating our money. In fact, I'm not going to talk about money at all today in a series about generosity. The Bible is actually calling us and maybe provoking in us the, this question that maybe the richest, fullest, most abundant life we could have isn't a life in which we hold on to the things we've been given, but a life in which we say, what would it look like to live fearlessly generous? To live out a sense that says, God has given me so much of my own self, not just in the possessions that I have, not just in the wealth that I might have, but in my own physical space, the way I, I steward that space that's been given to me, how people enter into it, my own emotional space. And yes, maybe there's a money conversation, but not today. We're not talking about that. We're talking about so much more. That What does it look like to donate ourselves to something way bigger than ourselves? To give ourselves to God such that he might do something we never could have imagined in our lives. So we'll look at the story of, of Moses in Exodus. And I want you to just, if you've got your Bible, we'll be in Exodus 1, like I said before. You can turn there now. But nowhere in the ancient world is there a person who has more stuff, more of everything you could imagine, a person who could say, I have excess of everything, than the Pharaoh. Pharaoh has, I mean, literally you could say he has all of the world's wealth at his disposal. He has powerful military forces at his disposal. He has land beyond what he knows what to do with. He's got people under his power. And yet this is a person who lives as though, by the way, he's worshipped as a god, who lives as though there isn't going to be enough. And anytime you see someone in the Bible who is powering up and trying to possess and own, particularly those people who believe themselves to be gods, those people generally get humbled in the story of the Bible. So let's look at what it says in Exodus chapter 1, verse 9. This is the Pharaoh speaking here. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. Now there's this huge belief by the Pharaoh. And the Bible, like, generally will have this sort of comparison, this contrast between what you would call scarcity, meaning this belief that there isn't enough, and abundance, which says there will always be enough. And nowhere in the book of Exodus do you ever get a description of Pharaoh as, you know, Pharaoh's a generous guy. He was just grateful for all that he had. You never get that sense. You do get the sense that Pharaoh says, over everything else, the one enemy to generosity that we could also probably connect with is fear. I've got, he's got everything, he's got all the world's wealth, and the way he's responding is, I'm afraid it will go away. I'm afraid the Israelites will leave. Well, they'll rise up against. Let's, let's get some slave masters and oppress them because I'm afraid it'll all go away. Fear. The dominant sort of description of the person of the Pharaoh is fear. A belief in scarcity that there isn't enough of himself or anything to go around. Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, speaking of the Israelites, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Skipping down to verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. That's not the actions of a person, although he has all this excess, that's not the actions of a person who goes, wow, I'm feeling like I got plenty. That's the actions of a person who believes there isn't enough. 
who's living out of scarcity and is resorting to this powering up, even violence of killing little babies. And this is the way he intends to deal with the sense of not being enough. Because for us, when we talk about generosity, the issue for us isn't that we don't have enough stuff. It's not that at all. It's that we're afraid that there isn't going to be enough. It's fear. And no better, there's no better picture of that than the Pharaoh. Now contrast that story of this powerful Pharaoh with all his armies and power and riches and everything else with this other story that happens in, in Exodus chapter 2. Which is, so the, this is the story of a, a, a tiny baby who's born. You have all the power and then you have this slave baby born. I'm gonna, just going to blaze through Exodus 2 as quickly as we can. We don't have time to go through it all. But here's the gist. And I'm going to leave out something. Someone caught me after last service and was like, we left out this part. I know, I don't have time. But here's, here's what's going on. A woman gets pregnant. She has a baby. She raises for three months. She realizes that baby is supposed to be thrown in the river because this is what the, the, um, the Pharaoh has decreed. She tried to hide him as long as she could. That's all she's got. So at three months, she makes a basket. The basket's the same word we get for the word ark. It just means container. She puts the baby in this ark basket and floats him down the river. So technically, she throws him in the river, but she puts him in a basket that he might live. Now, she's expecting him to die. There's animals there. There's hostile people. Who knows? But it's floating, the baby is floating down the river. And Pharaoh's daughter is down washing in the, in the river. And there are a couple of different circumstances. Servant girls find this baby, and they figure out, after all, it's a Hebrew baby. And the baby's returned to the mother. Now, remember, just think about the emotion the mom has here. Okay, I'm just giving my baby over that he's probably going to die. But I'll put him in a basket just with maybe there's a little bit of hope there. And then, who knows how many moments, days, hours later, she's, conv- she's convinced her baby's going to die. And then, hey, is this your baby? Yes. Can you please raise this baby? Yeah, I can do that. You know, so this is what happens. So this baby's returned to the mom to raise as her own. Pharaoh's daughter says, raise this baby. But then at some point, I'm going I'm to want you to give the baby back to me, which is also a double, like, punch. You know, here's your baby, but I want him back. Which the Bible is not really descriptive about how the mom feels about that. It just says, then at a certain age, he went back to live in the Pharaoh's house. This baby's given the name Moses. He lives in the Pharaoh's house. He recognizes that he's living in the house of the oppressor because he knows that his own people are under this sort of forced labor scenario, this slave labor kind of deal. So one day he goes out walking around, kind of seeing the plight of his own people. You have to imagine the conflict for this person. He doesn't belong in the house of the overlord oppressor, but yet he's there with all the spoils of royalty. And he's walking around, and he's looking at his own people. And he sees an Egyptian, you know, forcing himself upon a, a, a Hebrew, an Israelite. And, he walk, and so Moses walks over, kills that guy, looks around, and buries the Egyptian in the sand. And then all of a sudden, so now he, he gets discovered, he gets found out. He runs out into the wilderness, and he finds himself at a watering hole where all these, these sheep are being watered by um, seven shepherds. They're all women. He ends up scaring away a couple of these other, these other shepherds who are kind of being lame to the women there. And so he scares those guys away. The women all think he's awesome. He waters the sheep, which means he essentially becomes a shepherd, marries one of the women, and he kind of makes his home out in this place called Midian. Now, all of you are going, wow, that's wonderful. That is such a great story. Why does that matter? Let me tell you. If you were to list off sort of the famous people of the Bible, you'd probably go, okay, well, there's like Jesus, Moses, and maybe Noah, because he had a rainbow and an ark. I mean, these are the things you'd think about. But there's Moses would be somewhere in your top three or four of like famous Bible people. But let's just really quickly get a handle on who Moses is. Moses is a 
fugitive from the law, who, he's a murderous fugitive from the law, who ran out of fear into the wilderness. His own people hate him because he's lived in the house of the oppressor with all the spoils of wealth, not as a slave. The house that he grew up in now hates him because he's a wanted criminal. And now he's living as a shepherd out in the desert. The book of Genesis tells us that the Egyptians thought that shepherds were detestable. So here's this lowly shepherd guy living out in the desert who has no real home. He's not at home with the Egyptians. He's not at home with the Hebrews. And there he is out in the desert trying to figure out how to find an existence. And he finds out a way to just be a shepherd with his family. And there's this story now. This story is paralleling the story of the Pharaoh. Almighty, super powerful, high finance, all whatever he needs, Pharaoh, with this fugitive from the law who's a scared, a scared man taking care of sheep. And at some point, as all stories would begin to tell, you would see that these two stories have to come together in some way or another. And the question is, how do they do this? And what you're wondering is, my gosh, this story seems so familiar so far. Where have I seen or heard this story before? Star Wars is the answer. It's actually kind of the setup in the same way of so many stories. But some of you are like, well, what's Star Wars? There's like, you know, six of them. And then it's, you know, it's the one that came out in 1977. Okay, I don't, it's, whether it's the first one or the fourth one, whatever. One seventy-seven, the cool, like, 70s hair. All those guys, right? Those guys. Okay, now. Remember, at the beginning of this movie, some of you don't remember this, I'll just give it to you real quick. There's a big triangle spaceship. It's huge. Okay, it's coming in. Clearly part of the power. It devours another spaceship. You can tell the power and the wealth that's going on. There's a little laser battle. And then at some point, they kind of catch up to a story of a little whiny farm boy. He's a teenage kid, you know, and he has that famous line. So it always cracks me up. Hey, hey, Luke, we need your help. But I was going to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. I mean, just the whiniest kid. And that's a pretty good impression, I know, I realize. <laughs> Huge fan. Okay, so, and as you're watching the story, you're wondering, how does the giant triangle spaceship, which each other spaceships essentially, you know, absorbs them into himself, and, and it shoots, they have a big weapon that shoots planets, how does that story intersect with whiny farm boy from a desert planet with two suns? Because, you know, at some point, these two stories are going to have to come together. And the question you're wondering is, how is that going to happen? Moses is this... Really, he's a, essentially the same thing as this sort of out there in the desert farm kind of rancher guy. And you have the powerful Egyptian everything. How do these two stories come together? Verse 23 of chapter 2 says this. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God hearing their groaning, uh, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now what you know is this. There's these two parallel stories, and the way in which they're going to be joined probably has something to do with this God who remembers his own people. After 400 years of slavery, he remembers them. He hears their concerns and is concerned about them. So here's how God calls Moses. Exodus 3, famous passage. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mount of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Okay, a couple things you need to know. 
One is, this is a super famous story. You probably heard about, even if you've never even read the Bible, you've probably heard at least someone talk about a burning bush kind of experience. Kind of this epiphanal experience. Oh, I had God met me in some way. It was powerful. This is kind of where that comes from, okay? Now, this is what you need to know. First is, anytime someone in all of the Bible goes out into the wilderness, the original audience would have gone, well, they're going out to the wilderness. We know that nothing lives in the wilderness. Nobody goes out to the wilderness. for They don't like go four-wheeling. They don't go to Palm Springs. There's not good golf out there. That's not what they're thinking. When people go out to the wilderness, there's nothing that is alive out there, which means the only reason why someone would ever go into the wilderness would be to meet with God. Because there's nothing else out there. And in this case, Moses went to the far side of the wilderness. So God's going to speak to him. And what Moses finds is a burning bush. A bush that's burning but is not being swallowed up by the flames. Now, when I was in fifth grade, I was a, I was a junior firefighter my, of my fifth grade class. I know. You're welcome. Uh, but here's all it meant is I answered a couple questions on fire safety in the class. And I, you know, so because I got a good grade on the fire safety quiz, I got to squirt a fire hose in front of the school. And all my classmates got to watch me as I was like operating the hose. And it's like, I'm pretty awesome. Now, here's what I learned. There are three elements you have to have to, build, to make a fire. And I know there's a bunch of firefighters that go to church here, so help me out. What are they? What? Air, oxygen. Good. What else? Fuel in tandem. Both of you guys in perfect harmony. Well done. Good. What else? Heat. Air, oxygen, fuel, and heat. Now what you have in this instance is a burning bush that's not being burnt up, which means this is a fully self-sustaining fire that requires nothing to burn. It is giving off heat. It looks like it is fire. It all, has all the elements of fire, except it's not requiring anything to burn on its own. And this is how God begins to speak to Moses. And this, this fire, this burning bush, this flaming tumbleweed, whatever you want to call it, starts, is going to ask Moses to make a donation. He's not going to ask him for a little bit of something off the top, just kind of, can you help? We're trying to finance a little effort here. Can you help out? He's asking him to make a donation of his whole life to a cause that he thinks is impossible. Here's what God says. Verse 9. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Wait, wait a second. <laughs> God. Steve. Uh, you're asking me to do this? I mean, Moses is being asked to donate himself to a cause, which is what God has called him to, which is far greater than anything he ever could have imagined. And maybe there's something that God is doing in this community, in you perhaps, even in your own life, that you go, God's been calling me to do something. But it's way too big. There's something going on in my life that God's been kind of messing me with, messing with me about. I just, I'm sure he's doing but I just... I have, some, I have a few questions. I have a few objections. So does Moses. Turn your outline over. I want to show you. God asked him to make this donation of his whole self to something bigger than himself. And here are Moses' objections to the generous, the generous giving of, him, of himself to this cause. Here's what it is. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, this is the classic existential question. Well, who am I? It's the identity question. Who am I supposed to be? 
You have to wonder, Moses has to be kind of retracing the steps of his life. This is a known felon, a known criminal who's run out into the wilderness, who has no place with the Hebrews and no place with the Egyptians. And God's saying, I, choose, I want you to do this. And Moses has to be going, really? Me? I mean, really, are you sure? There's like, you probably might want someone that's got like a little more military prowess or, you know, maybe power or something, but I don't have any influence. I'm a shepherd. Who am I? What Moses is really asking is, I don't think I have what it takes. I'm not sure I'm enough. Maybe we get faced with the same question. God may be challenging you to do something that is gigantic, to which you might say, first objection, who am I that you'd ask me to do this? I mean, maybe there's a part of you that says, I want to see the community look different. I want to see the school change. I want to see families be rebuilt. I want to see marriages helped. I want to see relationships fixed. I want to see people living out a kind of life that God's, this picture of God's kind of ideal, ideal for community. And what you're saying is, God may be calling you to do this. You might be saying, well, who am I? I'm not sure I'm enough. Maybe you grew up in a house where the people that were supposed to love you continually told you, you're not enough. You know, you're, you could be a little better than you are because you're just not enough. Maybe you heard that message a lot in your life. Some of you are in the room and you're going, I have a past. <laughs> I mean, it's ugly. It's, I mean, if people knew what my past really looked like in here, they wouldn't want me to stay in here. I've done some things. So I have some huge regrets. I have some secrets I've buried in the sand that I don't want anybody to know about. I'm not enough. Maybe, for instance, you're in here and you're trying to become the lead pastor at Mariner's Church Mission Viejo. And you might be believing, I don't have what it takes to do this. Maybe you have the sense that the world's, the world-changing sort of fearless generosity that we're talking about over the course of this next series is for the truly exceptional people. And I don't have what it takes. That's Moses' objection. Who am I? God has an answer for him. But it's not the answer you expect. Because what we would expect if someone was to say that, that we've called someone to a task, what we would, have in, we would immediately turn to them and say, no, 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 you're great, you're awesome. We would find a way to build up their self-esteem. You know what, of all the shepherds that are out there, you're doing a great job. I mean, I've seen the way you just use the stick thing and everyone kind of follows along and, you know, I'm just really, and, we, you know, where would we, we be without the itchy sweaters that we make from their wool? I mean, it is, like, especially out here in the desert. So, you know, I mean, that's not what God says to him. God doesn't say you get a gold star for being the world's greatest shepherd. He doesn't say, let me build you up so that you believe you're enough. That's not what he says, which we hoped he would say. Instead, he says this in verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. Let me try that again. Of all the things God could have said to him about building him up to make him believe he's the special only person who could possibly do this job, what he simply says is, I will be with you. I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it's I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. It's not about what you're qualified to do. It's not about what you, what all of the things that you've already proved yourself to be worthy. Instead, what we see is this. That doesn't matter. None of us are qualified. God says, I'm going to be with you. 
The task I've called you to is big. You could not be qualified for the task I've called you for. But I'll be with you. And you can imagine the confidence swelling in Moses. Moses says, okay, all right, I'll do that. I'll take him out. And we'll come out. Here's what he says, verse 13. Moses said to God, well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. By the way, notice his own cognitive dissonance here. The God of your fathers, he's, he's an Israelite. And yet he's saying, suppose I say to them, the God of your fathers, not the God of our fathers, but the God of your fathers, sent me to you and they ask, what's his name? What shall I tell them? Now, what Moses is saying isn't, God, what, what do you put on the name tag at the office party? Like, what, what do you write there? You know, because you're not supposed to say the name or do you, you know, how do we, what do we do? It's not what he says. He's asking essentially the question, okay, so who am I that you'd send me, but who are you? And not just who are you, like what's your name, even though the question says name. It's a different thing than we would think about. It's really who are you? Because we know about the God of the fathers, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've heard of that guy. But we've been here for 400 years. We haven't really enjoyed that time under Egyptian oppression. And everybody will be saying, we've been crying out. Where has that God been? Because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, the one who kind of we know about through our history here, that's a guy who had to deal with like tribal squabbles, family little issues. But can you, God, the one who's calling me to do this, can you do what you're promising? Are you a big enough God to handle the Egyptian empire? This is a guy who believes himself to be a God. They own everything in the world. They're the most powerful thing we've ever seen in all of history. Are you big enough to handle that God, to handle the Egyptian gods? Are you, can you do what you promised? Essentially, Moses asked the question about our own, what we call the God image. Well, God, you might be calling me to do great things, but do I really believe that you're good? Do I believe that you're capable? Do I believe there's an abundance of your own goodness such that I might be able to be empowered by it? Or are you going to withhold something from me? Do you have what it takes, God? You might be with me, but are you big enough? Verse 14 and 15, God said to Moses, this is the, the covenant name of God, I am who I am, where we get the word Yahweh. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. God says his sacred, what we call the covenant name to Moses, this, incre- this name that's only uttered once a year in the most sacred place in the temple on Yom Kippur once the temple is established, once the tabernacle is established. And this is the name God gives to Moses. And it isn't just the name of God of the fathers, although he qualifies that as well. He gives him a new name, which is to say, my name is that I have always been. Before there was even anything, I was. I am presently and will always be. I am the eternal God and I dwell with you. Just call me I am because I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. I'm bigger than the Egyptians and I'm bigger than this task and I'm equal to it. And you can just imagine, the rest of this chapter is just the nonstop what that means. I mean, he just gives Moses, like, a list of all these things about how awesome he is. And Pharaoh's going to do this. Well, I got my right arm of justice coming against him. It's going to be powerful. He's going to be weak, you know, in front of you. And then you're going to walk out. You're just going to take stuff from the Egyptians and you walk out. They're just going to give it to you. It's going to be a plundering, awesome experience. I mean, it's, like, awesome. And, and there's this huge, unbelievable halftime speech. 
And Moses then hearing God's speech, getting the sacred covenant name, knowing who God is, says in chapter 4, verse 1, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Oh, come on. You just had this experience. You're not real. Maybe Moses, is it possible he might have forgotten his story a little bit? Let's just recap that story. The Pharaoh says, we got to kill all the boys, baby boys, throw them in the river. He happens to manage to be put in a basket which floats down the river. Pharaoh's daughter is out bathing, finds the basket, ends up returning the baby back to his mom. He grows up in the household of the Pharaoh and then manages to escape to the desert after he kills a guy. And, you know, he kind of makes his home there. And now he's talking to a flaming, burning tumbleweed that isn't burning up. And he's going, what if I don't have a story that God's been working in my life? How will I tell people that there's been something going on in which you've kind of been a part of it? See, at this moment, what we get is Moses is gripped by fear. God's called him to a life of a dangerous, fearless generosity in which he de- donates himself to a cause far greater than anything he could have imagined. And Moses keeps going, well, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure. It's like he lost his own story in the midst of this call on his life. Verse 2, God says this. The Lord said to him, what's in your hand? Now, the, the, question was, the question was, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe that I've kind of been making that? What if, what if they don't believe I've had this conversation? What if all this stuff isn't really true, the, all this stuff? What if they don't believe me? And God says, look what's in your hand. I've called you to a task. And he doesn't say, Moses, what would you like to have in your hand? Maybe would you like like a sword? Wouldn't that be great? Maybe you'd like a scepter, like one of those, you know, power, like something just to hold up that just indicates your power and influence. Or even better, a lightsaber, because that would, then we just would know how everything would work out. Of course, that way, yeah. A lightsaber, just went around and just, everybody would be scared of the lightsaber. But that's not what God asked Moses. God asked him, what's in your hand? Not what you wish was there, but what's in your hand? So here's how Moses answers. The Lord said, oh, says Moses said, what's in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it, which is the appropriate answer. What do you do? Snake, ah, you know, no one, you're not supposed to stand around snakes in the desert. You don't just walk up to them. So he runs away. You don't know how far away he ran away. God's like, Moses, come back here. I got this. Everything's cool. Come on over here. So Moses comes back. Here's what he says. The Lord said, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Okay, seriously? <laughs> it's a snake. Re- really? This isn't a joke. This is, there's no cameras around here. Like, this isn't a hilarious. So he reaches out, grabs it by the tail. Moses reaches, reached out and took, it, took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Now, what Moses has in his hand isn't something special. It's not a new thing. It's not, it's not like this is a magical staff that he uses. It's just his own staff that he used for shepherding. Now, God gives him essentially three signs. This is the first of them, the snake staff scenario. Then he's like, well, what else? And then God's like, put your hand inside your cloak. So he does. Pull it out again. Oh, my gosh, I have leprosy. Put your hand back in your cloak. The leprosy is gone. Like, this is, that's the story. I mean, that's all. And then, then I think Moses at that point is like, I think I got it. And God's like, if they don't, we'll just take, dip, take a little bit of the Nile in the cup and pour it out. It'll turn to blood. And Moses is like, I don't need that one. I think I got it. Okay. So he's got, he's got these three miracles he's been able to sort of use to prove who he is. 
And he's got this basic shepherd's tool, and it's not about what he doesn't have. God has put something in his hand that he doesn't even realize is as valuable as it could be in being used by God. Most of the time, what we have is a sense, or what's in our hand isn't, isn't able to be used by God. But there's something God's already given you in your life that we tend to go, well, it's not enough, because we compare. Because we look at what everybody else has in their hand, and we go, if I only had what they have in their hand, I would do something, God. I'm telling you, it would be amazing. I mean, it would be awesome. But I don't have what they have, so I, I can't. Comparison kills generosity. You know, for a lot of us, you know, I, I work with a lot of our, our college students at our, um, on our Sunday night service at Irvine. And a lot of them have a recent memory of applying to college. Some of you are in that same situation. You're applying to college. You're going to apply to college. And there's so much pressure when the colleges ask you to sort of come up with what you've got in your hands that you kind of have to, you know, like you're kind of like, well, do I make it up? You know, like I started 17 clubs this year. And then I, I invented a new form of energy, but I haven't patented yet, so I can't talk about it in this essay. But you have this whole kind of thing. There's a guy a couple years ago um, who applied to NYU. Some of you have seen this letter. I just want you, I, it's worth reading the entire letter. It's, only, it's just awesome. But I want you to hear, this guy just flew in the face of all that, knowing that all of his friends and classmates and everybody in the country is exaggerating all the stuff that they've done. So he just took it to the nth degree. I want you to hear this letter. This is unbelievable. So this, they're asking him, are there any significant experiences you've had or accomplishments you've realized that have helped to define you as a person? Here's the letter, which got him into NYU. I am a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I translate ethnic slurs for Cuban refugees. I write award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. Occasionally, I tread water for three days in a row. I woo women with my sensuous and godlike trombone playing. <laughs> I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed, and I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. I <laughs> I'm an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. <laughs> Using only a hoe and a large glass of water, I once single-handedly defended a small village in the Amazon basin from a horde of ferocious army ants. I play bluegrass cello. I was scouted by the Mets. I'm the subject of numerous documentaries, and when I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my yard. I, <laughs> I enjoy urban hang gliding, and on Wednesdays after school, I repair electrical appliances free of charge. I'm an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. <laughs> I don't perspire. I'm a private citizen, yet I receive fan mail. I've been caller number nine and have won the weekend passes. Last summer, I toured New Jersey with a traveling centrifugal force demonstration. I, I bat 400. My deft floral arrangements have earned me fame in international botany circles. Children trust me. I'm just like, that's fine. It's all three sentences. <laughs> I can hurl tennis rackets at small moving objects with deadly accuracy. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish an entire dining room that evening. I know... <laughs> I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket. I've performed several covert operations for the CIA. I sleep once a week, and when I do sleep, I sleep in a chair. <laughs> While on vacation in Canada, I successfully negotiated with a group of terrorists who had seized a small bakery, and the laws of physics do not apply to me. I balance, I weave, I dodge, I frolic, and my bills are all paid. On weekends, to let off steam, I participate in full-contact origami. 
Years ago, I discovered the meaning of life but forgot to write it down. I've made extraordinary four-course meals using only a muli and a toaster oven. I breed prize-winning clams. I've won bullfights in San Juan, cliff-diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I've played Hamlet. I've performed open-heart surgery, and I've spoken with Elvis, but I have not yet gone to college. I love what that guy allegedly got, I mean, apparently, who knows, Urban Myth, whatever, got into NYU on that essay alone, mocking the entire notion of, I got to have something better in my hand for you to think I'm acceptable. And God saying, whatever you've got, I can use that. Stop thinking that you don't have something, because like, what you've got in your hand, you can use. Our fear of what we have versus what everybody else has, that comparison kills fearless generosity. It stops our ability to donate ourselves to something bigger than us because of comparison. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Now, Moses is essentially saying, hey, I grew up in Pharaoh's court. It means I, my primary language is probably Egyptian here. Now, I've been out here in the wilderness running away from people, which means, I, you know, there's not a lot of people around. I spent a lot of time around the sheep. So my Hebrew isn't even that good. You want me to go back, talk to Pharaoh, talk to my own people? I don't do the talking thing well. Great people who have made fearless, fearlessly generous changes in the world are people who have great words. Gettysburg Address, I Have a Dream. Those are all, I mean, those are things people remember. I don't have the words, God. I don't have what it takes to speak to these people. God says this, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight and makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. God's saying, I'm going to give you the words. You're wondering who you are. It doesn't matter because I'm going to be with you. And I'm the God of eternity. I'm the God of the past, the present, and the future. I am never going to, I, I am never going to not exist. I'm the eternal God who is. I'm with you. And you don't have to worry about the words because I make people understand words. I got that covered. And Moses, feeling another swelling of excitement and joy in his own heart, says, verse 13, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. I don't have what it takes. I'm not enough. You're not enough. You got the wrong guy. Find someone else. Before this whole thing even begins, Moses, like I said, is among the most famous people in all of the Bible. And he doesn't want this task. Send someone else. I know you're with me. That's great, but I'm not your guy. And you can expect God's response. This is verse 14. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. I have no idea what that means. There's already a flaming, fiery bush talking to him. So is it more fire that's not burning up the bushes? You know, who knows? A hotter the word anger, by the way, is, I just think this is funny. I don't know why it's funny to me, but it's the same as the word nostril. So I just want you to know, in Hebrew, it's like, you just, is he flaming the nostrils? The no, somehow just nostrils of fire, like, I'm angry. Now, we would expect God to go, I'm so angry. Clearly, you can't be the guy. I've had enough. You're done. I'm, I, go hang out with your sheep. That's what we would expect. That's what Moses probably deserves, but that's not what happened. What you see in the next couple of verses is a very generous God who is generous in his own patience, who uses broken people who are reluctant, who don't believe they can accomplish things. 
He uses those people who have got their eyes on the wrong stuff, not even on how God, he uses broken people to do stuff. Here's what God says. Zanger burns against them, and then continuing on, second half of verse 14. What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. He'll be glad to see you. You should speak to him and put words in his mouth. And I'll help both of you speak, and we'll teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. You see, God uses people who are reluctant people, who have a past, who have things that have been buried. Over the course of the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about what God wants to do in your life. Things that you can't possibly imagine that are so big and so unbelievable. And we'll all have these objections. Well, who am I? Who are you? But what, if, what if they don't believe me? What if I can't find the words? God says, I still want to use you. I don't have to use you, but I want to use you. I want you to be a part of my story unfolding the community in the world. We see this picture of a patient God who chooses to use fearful people to demonstrate his abundance. The Ark of the Bible is is about God's sufficient power through broken people who are willing to donate themselves to him. Jesus tells his disciples, just to give you a little bit of foreshadowing for the next couple weeks, Jesus tells his disciples, whoever loses their life, whoever stops clinging to the life they've been given, Whoever clings to their life like that will lose it, but whoever loses that life, who gives up that life they've been clinging on to forever, whoever loses that life for my sake will find a life of richness that they never could have imagined, of fullness. That is the journey we're on for the next couple of weeks. It is courageous. It is scary. It is a world-changing kind of journey where we're asking all of us to say, what would it look like to donate myself fully to what God would have me do? How would our world look so different if we just said, okay, I'm your guy. I'm your woman. I'll do it. Let's pray together. Jesus, we believe that you are generous. We believe that you give fully and richly. We understand, God, that um, we aren't enough by ourselves. That you choose people who are woefully underqualified for the tasks you've called us to. God, will we not be discouraged? Let me ask you, just with your eyes are closed, in the stillness of this space, what is it that God might be doing in your own heart, calling you to, that you think, that's crazy. I can't, po- I can't possibly be what you're calling me to. i got to believe that God's spirit is at work in this place, such that people are being called to do something that they thought could, they could never do. What is it that God's calling you to? The quietness of your own heart. What is it that God's saying? I think I want you to do something that you don't think you can do. Because I'll be with you. What are the fears that come up against those kinds of things that God's calling you to do? Because they're real, they're legitimate. Moses had them. Who am I? Who are you? What if people don't believe me? What if I can't find the words? Maybe there are other objections that you have to what God might be calling you to do. Jesus, would you hear our fears? Would you hear our desire, which is to to follow you courageously, to see the world be made different because we would choose to follow you and pursue you with our whole life, our whole heart. 
Father, would this community be one in which people get a sense of courageous faithfulness, of fearless generosity, of people donating themselves to you in a beautiful way? So God, as we sing, as we respond, would you continue to speak to us? Would you hear our words as we sing back to you, a group of people going, we just want to learn, learn what it looks like to live out fearless generosity. So God, we give you our words. We thank you, Jesus, because of your power through us, with us, and among us, Lord. Amen.